Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. If you want to learn useful, practical how-tos of weight loss, exercise science, nutrition, or just how to optimize your time in the gym and life, this show is for you. This podcast is brought to you by the Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Dr. Sturette is a movement and mobility coach for players in the NFL, MLB, NHL, and NBA, plus a doctor of physical therapy. Kelly has created a program called Virtual Mobility Coach. Every day, Virtual Mobility Coach gives you guided mobility videos. It walks you step-by-step through Kelly's proven techniques to relieve pain, improve range of motion, and improve performance. Try it completely free for two weeks, and if you decide to continue, you can get 10% off for life using the promo code PROJECT10. Hurry up, because the code expires October 1st. Welcome to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. Our guest comes all the way from Bangalore, India. And it's a different time zone, so we appreciate her taking the time to come on here in the evening. We're sitting down with an award-winning plant-based sports nutritionist, body transformation specialist, someone who has worked with over 12,000 clients worldwide. That is a massive amount of people. Today, we are sitting down with Roshni Sangvi. Roshni, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, very excited to have you on here because you are a, a plant-based or a sports nutritionist from the vegetarian or the vegan side of the world. And this is very yeah. interesting to me. It's new. It's not something I've come across before. And I've, I've dealt with people who do sports nutrition, but never, never in this aspect here. So can you start off by saying exactly like what, what is that and how did you get into it? Yeah, sure. Well, it was um, when I got into it about 10 years back, it was new. It was very new. Now people have started understanding um, how a plant-based diet actually fuels their sports. It's better if you're an athlete. It's better in terms of recovery. It's better in terms of boosting your immunity, improving your speeds. We have studies, we have research now, which says that people who are on a plant-based diet um, tend to do a little bit better in terms of performance. But when I was just getting started, even the concept of veganism was very new, um, especially in India, where, I, where I'm working from, um, you know, people did not even want to listen that dairy is not good for them because we, we've grown up with the belief that dairy is so good for you and dairy is healthy for you. And I was in the fitness industry even before I turned plant-based. So I was a vegetarian before I decided to go vegan. And in the fitness industry, especially, you constantly told that you need proteins and you need calcium and you only get that from dairy and dairy products. Um, supplements, whey and casein are hugely sold. And I was taking a lot of whey and casein. And this was before I turned plant-based. And then I decided, you know, let me let me see what happens. Let me see if I drop my muscle mass and let me see if I get weaker. And uh, on the contrary, I got stronger. And mm. I was lifting as much as a lot of guys in the gym. I was competing for a bodybuilding competition and I decided, let me see if I can do it on a plant-based diet. And I did really well. Um, so that was sort of a motivation. But then I really wanted to test myself and see, okay, but, you know, can you really, like, be strong? Um, and I started exploring powerlifting and, you know, started seeing if I could go for powerlifting competitions. And it, it, my diet was never a reason for me to, like, it wasn't holding me back. If anything, my recovery was faster and I didn't have any inflammation Um I didn't have digestive issues, which is when I started exploring it professionally and seeing how I could help my clients better um, through a plant-based diet. So I started studying about it. Being an athlete myself, sports nutrition was something that I was you know, inclined to. Um, and that was something I picked up first. That was one of the you know, certificates I did was as a sports nutritionist um, to try and see how I can help other athletes. Because when people were coming to me for coaching, I could tell them that a plant-based diet is better for you, but you really need to show studies and researchers because, mm-hmm. you know, as an athlete, especially like young athletes, parents are really concerned about their kids. They want the best for their kids. 
and if you're able to show the parents that this is the this your kids don't survive they thrive on a plant based diet um then it's different now you have documentaries like game changers but we didn't have that back then so it was a lot of reading yeah definitely a lot of new um science or, or new documentaries coming out uh, he- heightening some of that information for yourself there uh i find this very unique because i feel a lot of people who go one way anybody who goes one way with nutrition it's because it's affected them they had something, they yeah. tried something new and then they got a benefit out of it. Then all of a sudden they they try it on other people and then they see there's more benefits about it. Nutrition is so confusing for a lot of people because it's you will hear good. someone who says vegetarianism is best. Vegan is best. Yeah. You know, carnivore is best. Keto is best. You know, yeah. no one ever says the standard American diet is best. I think we're all in agreement there. No one would ever say yeah. that that's best, yeah. but um, it, it seems that different things can be best for different people. When you said that you were yeah. eating protein, then you switched to, you know, um, uh, vegan specifically and your digestion got better, your recovery yeah. got better. Is it possible that maybe, is there people out there who just don't digest protein or is it specific types of protein? Yeah. So we know that research shows dairy is hard to digest about like more than half of the world's population is lactose intolerant. Mm -hmm. We know that. Um, So we do know it's, you know, it's one of the top four uh, allergens. So when you look at the top four allergens, dairy is number one. So we do know it does cause indigestion. But for me, uh, one of the first signs I noticed was as soon as I switched to a vegan diet, within like a couple of weeks, my joint pains went away. And I had joint pains all my life. And I thought it was normal when you're into bodybuilding to have joint pains. I literally had learned to live with it because I was like, that's it. You know, you're, you chose to be a bodybuilder and you're going to have joint pains. Uh, but when I transitioned to a plant-based diet, just within a couple of weeks, and then I started researching about it, does inflammation go down on a plant-based diet? Now, of course, I know because I'm working with clients with diabetes, cholesterol, hypertension, um, asthma, migraines, thyroid, PCOS, and we reverse these conditions on a plant-based diet and we help people maintain that, sustain that all their life. But the other thing, the beautiful thing about plant-based diet, you don't have to do calorie counting. You don't have to, especially when it comes to weight loss, just because the diet is so high in fiber and resistant starch and uh, it's so low in fats, you're not, you're not going to be gaining. So on a sustainable basis for people who are looking to lose weight and keep it off and not bounce back, you know, because you're still eating just the way you're not calorie counting, you're not measuring everything. There's so little little calories, right? In vegetables, there's so little calories in most of the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're consciously looking to gain muscle mass, um, you don't have to worry too much about how much you're eating and what you're eating. So it becomes easier to sustain it, um, I would say, on a long-term run. Mm -hmm. So you said that the dairy was the big one. You reduced the dairy and then things got better. What about other sources of protein as well? Do you find some people digest, you know, maybe uh, beef over fish or fish over chicken? Yeah. You already mentioned about the protein powders, but are there some proteins that yeah. digest better for certain people? Or is it just like maybe to stay away from all of them? All kinds of proteins come with um, growth hormones and testosterone, um, sex hormones. And I'm not even saying the hormones which are injected into the animal to increase the production of meat, which dairy farmers do. And, you know, if it's like a factory farm meat, you it's going to be hormonated. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking generally when like um, the only time a cow gives milk is when the cow is pregnant and gives birth. Without mm-hmm. birth, milk doesn't come. Yeah. So the period of right after birth, just like with humans, the amount of sex hormones in the body of the animal is going to be really high. So even if you're not injecting any hormones into the animal, the milk you're getting is really a lot of progesterone and estrogen, which is the female sex hormone. Yeah. So it's not even allergy is one thing, but besides that, you're drinking something which we are told to stay away from. Like, would you drink a shot of estrogen? You wouldn't drink it, but you're getting it through like, you know, yeah, you wouldn't drink it. Uh, so you're getting it through the animals. Um, so that way, I would say, you know, people do tend to, when you say like, do they have gut issues? If you train your gut, if your gut is really strong, you might not have gut issues. But that doesn't mean that you don't have hormonal fluctuation. You don't have cholesterol. Uh, you don't have, you're eating saturated fats. So you're going to get heart diseases. And uh, it is a proven you know, fact that vegans and vegetarians don't have as many heart diseases, diabetes, cholesterol. So you're still doing harm to your body. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I totally believe in a plant-based diet more than a vegan diet. So like a 80, 20, 90, 10 kind of rule with my clients, 
you know it's not that you have to feel guilty if you go out and eat something which which has beta dairy that's why i'm thinking of it from a health perspective 100% from a health perspective as long as you're on a 90% 80% plant based diet you're doing well you're doing really good so aim for that it's really interesting there was a there was a study in the american journal of nutrition came out in march of this year and they were comparing um vegetarians vegans and omnivores of children age 5 to 10 and they just looked at their yeah. markers they they just said okay you eat like this you eat like this they did blood labs they came back and they said that there was um um, less instances or less um, association with coronary heart disease for the vegans and the vegetarians versus mm-hmm. the omnivore. But what was really interesting one is they also showed there was a height difference. And they said that the ones who were vegan and vegetarian were shorter than the people, yeah. who, the omnivores. So they were showing that, that, you know, inside health looked to be a little bit better, but, you know, size w- yeah. was a little bit different. Yeah, it's so interesting. So I haven't read that particular study, but what tends to happen is you're talking about bone growth. You know, what mm-hmm. happens to like bone growth? When you compare like vegans and vegetarians versus people who eat meat, two things happen and you start aging. As you start aging, we tend to notice that people who are on a high carnivore diet tend to have lesser muscle mass and which is really, really surprising because you would think someone who's eating a lot of meat, getting so much protein should have higher muscle mass. But if you look at geriatric populations, they tend to have lesser muscle mass. Second thing, and this is very popular. If you compare the case of, you know, bone, when you look at bone health specifically, Cases of osteoporosis, hip fractures, and weak bones are highest in countries which consume highest amount of dairy products. Mm-hmm. Dairy, yeah. So as you, yeah. So as you're getting older, you know, uh, you see bone health going down. And I'm not sure about the study about the height which you're specifically talking, but I would love to read that. But when you look at someone's like build, like when clients come up to me and they say that I want to look like a bodybuilder, I want a 15 to 17% body fat or like a 10 to 12% body fat my first response to them is that's not the healthiest. Mm-hmm. That's not sustainable. And genuinely speaking, it's not because you don't have, you need that extra layer of fat around you. Mm-hmm. You need that fat cushioning and it, it's insulating. It's, it's good for your internal organs. But someone trying to reach a 10 to 15% body fat, you can't sustain it all year long. And if you can, so what bodybuilders do, if you are sustaining it, you're very, very restricted in terms of the micronutrient. An average bodybuilder's lifespan is what, 48 years? I wouldn't that's be surprised. Right. I mean, if anyone's listening to this and they have their favorite bodybuilders out there, a lot of bodybuilders, they die early. Like a lot, some, yeah. some of the top people in our game have died early and you always hear that they're always on um, TRT, you know, after they've, they're done competing, they now need to be on supplements, hormonal supplements, yeah. because they've abused their bodies for so many years, exactly. but you're hundred percent right yeah. there. They don't, the longevity doesn't last in the bodybuilding world. But now also it's so much of social media. No, you're used to showing your, you like, like a perfect six pack, eight pack all year round. And then you, you gain weight and you know, you're going to lose followers and you don't want to see that you have an image set for yourself. So I think it's, it's very bad. It's negative, uh, but it's not true. Like when you go on social media and you see bodybuilders, you don't associate that with health. And it's sad when a lot of people say, I want to reach that level of health. No, mm-hmm. you want to reach that level of fitness, but health is not necessarily your aesthetic health. Yeah. Hundred percent, totally agree with that. And being in Canada, um, we need that extra fat. It's cold up here, so it's cold. <laughs> yeah, we could, we could yeah. I was use studying that. in I was studying in Buffalo, like uh, which is like close. on the border of Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very close. And it we used to get the highest amount of snowfalls. It was crazy. <laughs> probably, yeah, was probably really a little crazy. different than what you're used to. Yeah, uh, yeah I I, yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with you, hundred percent. That the bodybuilding look, the bodybuilding lifestyle, is not a, a good source of uh, health especially when you're talking longevity and stuff and they do, they die early. I mean, that's a fact you mentioned. Um, uh, sorry, one question I want to ask you is the difference between a sports nutritionist and just a nutritionist. Mm-hmm. Cause you said you were a sports, but you work with 12,000 people. You must not just work with 12,000 athletes. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, sports nutritionist was something, so you get a basic nutrition degree and then you start specializing in what you love to do. And sports nutrition itself is very, very vast. Now, the sports nutrition certificate was what I did was just a basic one just to help me uh, in my sport. But then if you're working with marathoners, the kind of nutrition program you follow is very different versus someone who's like a, you know, powerlifter versus mm-hmm. someone who, who's like a tennis player. So it would also differ from sport to sport. It is different. And I chose that niche when I was really young. But I think now I work with a lot of people in terms of disease reversal just because there's a need. India is like the diabetes capital of the world. 
that's that's huge Did and india that. is predominantly known for a vegetarian diet being the diabetes capital of the world because of the dairy consumption dairy mm-hmm. consumption i think we are the second beef exporters so second highest beef exporters of the world um but the dairy consumption is really higher so now it's a lot of disease reversal someone has cholesterol and diabetes and hypertension how do you try to reverse that get people off medication through nutrition and through wellness and lifestyle modification and healing just with you know uh, mindfulness practices so that's sort of what i've branched out to now uh, but yeah i was working with athletes before um, which is very very different you know because their requirements are different their food intake their calorie intake is different their training style is different so someone who's on the floor who's training for 6 to 8 hours their needs are going to be different yeah 100% versus people who go to the gym for like 45 minutes mm-hmm. Uh, there's two things I want to talk about there well, based on what you just said. One is, uh, so a lot of people listen to this uh, are powerlifters or, you know, they're into the sport of powerlifting. H- how is a powerlifter's diet or how should a powerlifter's diet be curated to meet the demands of the sport? You know, some of my, so yeah. like I coach powerlifters, some of them only do 45 minute workouts. Some of them are doing three hour workouts, but um, what's your take exactly. on how the nutrition should change based on a powerlifting diet? it caters till their competition and then around their competition depending on the weight category they are competing in we need to you know so you would start off at a little bit heavier weight so you're building strength and then depending on the weight category you're competing in we start to temper down um and then on the day on the day diet also is going to be different you need to refuel you need to make sure that you're fueling well before going to the competition mm-hmm. but it's not a lot of heavy foods like very fibrous food which might not digest with your gut um so it it's it's different based on what part of the competition you're in or if you're taking the year off just for recovery then it's a little bit relaxed um also depending on your body weight the calories and the macronutrients slightly change mm-hmm. yeah but um mostly it's to do with about a 60% carbohydrate and then the rest divided in proteins and fats depending on how the person digests a lot of people do well with more proteins a lot of people do well with a little bit more fats so it really depends on you know what what the person wants to do in terms of gaining weight or losing weight or strength i've had some people uh, say to me they're like hey i really need to get my nutrition dialed in now that i'm powerlifting and they may have come from a bodybuilding background and i always yeah. i always say like well what were you doing before they're like, i trained 6 days a week 3 hours a day and i'm like okay what what are you doing now and they're like well i trained 3 days a week 2 hours a day they're like how much should i eat i'm like less well, well yeah. <laughs> why should I eat less? Like, well, you're doing less. You, your requirements are not as high. But I think sometimes there's a myth that people think that if you're powerlifting, you need to have super high caloric diets. And I always yeah. say it, it's the duration of the workout. You know, you've powerlifted. Every now and then we sit down for five minutes, right? Like you take a longer rest yeah. than usual. But if you're doing longer rests, yeah, way longer so sometimes rest. your work is, is not as high. It's got to be catered towards the, the total workout time. Yeah, absolutely. But also because it's an all out energy in those 10 seconds. It's a 10 second deadlift and you need to give your all out energy. So you need to have good glycogen stores. Mm-hmm. You need to sort of retrain your body, you know, to hold on to um glycogen and use it when needed. So you're training in a different heart rate zone and a different, you know, so that would change also. Do you think athletes could benefit from uh intra uh like peri nutrition like within session if they're trying to do something like that? Say powerlifter is going to do like 3 hour routine, should they consume something within yeah. that 3 hours or at a competition? Yeah, for athletes, definitely. And that needs to be catered. So if you're a sprinter, if you sprint like 100 meter dash, you don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. But if you're a marathoner who's doing like a 42 miles, you have to, you know, you have to talk to your nutritionist about intra-workout uh, nutrition. For a power lifter also, because it's a three hour long session, you might not realize you're, you're depleting yourself of electrolytes. Even though you're doing that one move for that 10 seconds, 20 seconds, you're giving your all out energy, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so that, your electrolytes might yeah. be depleted. So you might need that. Um, you might need BCA sometimes depending on your nutrition, but you definitely need to talk to your nutritionist about for certain, for certain train, uh, you know, for certain types of competition. But if you're someone just going to the gym for the 45 minutes workout, water is enough. Everything mm-hmm. else is overrated. Water is just good enough. Water works. You mentioned before, and I didn't know this about uh, the high amounts of diabetes that, that is in India. And then you also mentioned, you keep coming back to dairy, to dairy, to dairy. Is it possible? Well, it sounds like you're, you're suggesting that this high consumption of dairy is just bad for people. 
It's just bad. We don't digest it. Maybe as babies, we did, we stopped doing it. You know, it's just bad for people. Do you think people could, if they weren't eating dairy, like in India, but they were eating um, uh, organic grass fed, free range um, sources of protein, muscle meat, muscle organ, animal organs, that they would still, they they would still be in this diabetic state or they'd be much healthier. I don't think so. I think they would be much healthier. And this is also when I work with clients and I talk to them about this, that if there's one thing I want you to drop first, meat or dairy, it would be dairy. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be meat. Eventually, I'm not saying meat is healthy for you. Now, this was an interesting conversation I had with my dad, who's very anti-vegan and he's very, very pro-dairy. And he was telling me that, you know, places like Switzerland, which have a very high dairy consumption, they live in their 90s and they have, have, you know, they they have good lifespan. They They live really long. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> let me just Google this. And I Googled it. And when you compare Switzerland and places with that, well, Switzerland is first of all, not the highest dairy consumption. Uh, Switzerland doesn't even come in the top 20. Um, but when you look at, you know, places with the highest consumption of meat also, uh, and you compare them with the blue zones of the world, blue zones is where people follow predominantly plant-based diet. It's a 90% vegan with a 10% meat, no dairy. Yeah. And when you compare the two, so the blue zones do better than meat only and dairy only places. Uh, So I'm not saying that meat is good by any chance, but I'm saying that if you have to compare meat and dairy, then dairy is definitely the bigger evil compared to meat. Yeah, I I would, I would agree with you hundred percent there. I I feel like it's one of the simplest things that you can remove to get the greater results. It's not that difficult to find alternatives, Um, you know, all across the world now. I mean, it's, well, first of all, it's easy to make alternatives at home, but even if you don't want to, you have alternatives that, you know, coming to a pretty similar cost as like dairy milk or like cheese or butter. Um, So what my message to people would be, don't have to do everything. Look at your highest consumption. And most people, it's tea or coffee. Mm-hmm. For most people, they consume a lot of tea or coffee. Why don't you continue consuming dairy if it's too much for you to drop, but just replace the milk with almond or soy milk? You know, that's like a one step, but you don't think about it. You're consuming that on a daily basis. And now you've made a 10% switch. That's 10% healthier than you were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, funny, funny story for you. As a power lifter, I moved up a couple of weight classes. So one of my go-tos was, I'm like, how could I consume a lot of calories in, a, in an easy way? And so I actually said, I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink milk. And I, I don't drink milk. I'm not a dairy guy anyway. And so I said, I'm going to go with, you know, organic milk. So I was consuming, um, I was consuming a liter and a half a day, right? It was a simple way to yeah. bump an extra about thousand calories. And I was doing it. And my weight was going up and, and there was no side effects, nothing out of the norm, no digestive issues, nothing out of the, nothing out of the norm. But one day I went to get my milk and it wasn't available. So instead I just mm. got standard grocery store milk that came from, you know, farmers, yeah. you know, like companies. So I got that. And I remember I had it the next morning, like what was my normal routine and it went right Glad through you. my, right through me, right through me. Like my body could not digest it at all. So it was was real for me, it was a personal experience that I was like, Ooh, the dairy that, that, that most people are eating is not, not going to be very good. And I got a couple little kids. I got a six-year-old, I got a five-year-old and uh, we don't, we don't give them the dairy. We don't give them the milk. They breastfed. And then that was it. And it's funny because a lot of our friends, a lot of people in these social circles, we go to parks and stuff. They're sitting there and they're just shoving milk in, into the kids' mouths. Now here's, here's the kicker when it's hot and all the kids take their shirts off. My kids are like lean little boys. Like they look like healthy little boys. Not a lot of the other kids do. Mm. They, 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 like, yeah, they've got a little extra body fat on them. They don't look at, like as healthy. They don't yeah. look like little kids. And that that's just one observation that I've noticed. Um, we don't give that's- our kids dairy and, and they, they seem pretty healthy. Yeah, this is also the other thing, which a very common you know, observation in India. If you have kids around the age of sixth, seventh grade, you start seeing that the kids who are off dairy tend to get their menstrual cycles much later, which you're supposed to. You're supposed to get it around 16, 17. And you have kids who are high dairy consumers mm-hmm. tend to get their menstrual cycle as early as nine, 10, 10 year olds. And oh, wow. that's really young. And that's not healthy. Yeah, that's really not healthy also tend to have PCOS related problems by the eight, by the time they're like 15, 16 year old. So they start missing their periods and they have really heavy flows and, you know, mood swings, endometriosis, difficulty conceiving a child. So this is so common. This is like, you know, 
it's like and it's such a direct connection <laughs> like why don't people make this connection and you know daddy's bad daddy's really bad yeah now, and that is another specialty that you have. I did read on your on your bio and stuff that you do work with that special uh, clientele. And you think that when they're being diagnosed with those conditions at an early age, it's correlated with the dairy consumption, yeah? It's Yeah, it's correlated with the dairy consumption, but it also creates a sort of a negative uh, body image because with PCOS, it's easy to gain weight. Mm-hmm. You have acne, you're going to have hormonal issues, you're going to have hair fall. Um, and it's really hard to see these kids go through this, you know? Already as teens, you're going through a lot. And Working. then you also have these. Sorry. Um, yes, I, yes, I hear yes. you. Um, working with 12,000 plus people over the years, you must have been able to identify like simple, like what are common things that people are doing not good for their health and then some simple roadblocks that you, or simple solutions yeah. you might have to overcome those roadblocks? Yeah, depends on the population because I have so many streams to work with people. I have my own fitness center. I have my own gym. Oh, nice. uh, where I see clients on a regular basis. And when people come to the gym, it's with very clear objectives, it's weight loss or weight gain. Mostly it's very clear objectives. Uh, very rarely do you see disease reversal or clients with like, you know, just got a heart attack and want to come to the gym and start working on their health or uh, just been diagnosed with cholesterol or diabetes and want to come and work on their health. So that's a very, that's a different, you know, kind of population. Now you, they want very fast results. They're mm-hmm. coming to the gym, they're making a payment and they're expecting fast results. So the approach there becomes very different. Then I have my online business where I see clients from all across the globe and they're coming with the mindset that I'm paying to a nutritionist, expecting a nutrition plan and trying to reverse my disease because that's how, you know, um, a lot of the clients through my social media, they know that I work with disease reversal and that's a different kind of mindset because they're not looking to lose weight or gain, gain weight, mostly. They're looking to heal themselves and they're mentally prepared in terms of healing themselves which should be the first step for everyone. Now, when you do have insulin resistance, when you have something called estrogen dominance, where your female sex hormone is really high, when you have low libido, when you have low testosterone, high cortisol, high stress hormones, the last thing your body's going to want to do is lose weight. It's like you're in a forest and a tiger's running behind you. The last thing you're thinking about at that time is fertility and reproduction and hunger and you're not digestion. You're not thinking about all that. Your body is not doing all that. Your body is in high stress mode or what we call a sympathetic state. You want to run away from the tiger. Your stress hormones are high. Your heart rate is beating. Your, you know, your blood vessels are dilated. So there's, there's, that's what's happening. Now, in real life, now we don't have tigers running behind us. But we have that important mail from the boss. We have our kids screaming in the background. We have a fight with a spouse. All these things are like mini tigers running around. But what happens in a forest? You run for a distance and then the tiger gives up and then you're safe and then you're fine. You know, and then you don't have to worry about it. But in today's time, these stressors are always going to be there. So you never go into this I'm safe now space. So I think that should be the first priority for everyone. But when I'm in the gym working, you know, when I'm managing my stuff, If I'm going to tell the clients, hey, you know what, you're really stressed right now. Why don't we do some meditation, then focus on fat loss? They're not going to want to listen to that. They didn't come for that. I mean, if they wanted to do that, they would have gone to a psychologist uh, or a therapist. They came to the gym to lose weight. So that's a different mindset. Um, But that's one of the roadblocks. What do you do in that situation? What we have tried to do is we've tried to do once or twice in a week group uh, therapy session where we call a like a therapist or a a a group psychologist from outside and she holds a therapy session which is free for all members and sometimes they go so deep because these are clients who probably don't know each other they've seen each other on the floor but they don't know each other so it's kind of easy to open up when you don't know someone you know no Mm -hmm. one's judging you and we've had people cry in these sessions in some of these sessions and it's really 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 nice uh, to see that it's sort of a space to open them open yourself out it's not a it's not a regular thing so it's a, you you want to come you come you don't want to come you don't come I, I also encourage my trainers they like it or not include like a 10 minutes mindfulness practice session post your workout session you know take that 10 minutes extra for the client and it doesn't have to be meditation because a lot of people can't sit down and close their eyes it causes anxiety it's going to cause more stress. So it doesn't have to be sit down and close your eyes. It could be as simple as, hey, you know, mostly you give, you give stretches to your clients, right? Mm-hmm. So while you're giving stretches to your clients, 
let this be an opportunity for clients to open up and talk because sometimes all they want to do is talk they don't want solutions they don't want anything they just want to be able to say i've had a really bad day and this is why i've had a bad day and let them it's okay just give them the time to talk or play some music for them and ask them to lie down and listen to the music so come up with something that allows them to sort of you know just just be without thoughts running constantly in their head and then when they are ready to take that step to add mindfulness practices in their lives and then we have classes for mindfulness practices okay now that you're ready why don't you start adding it your results also faster your fat loss is much faster if you take this approach of mindfulness practices first and then exercise and then nutrition versus trying to do exercise and nutrition and not working on lifestyle and mindfulness practices wouldn't exceptional and then i have corporate sorry. go ahead sorry and and then i have corporate seminars where it's like they just see me once and you know it's like thousands of people and they just see me once i generally tell them try and follow me on my social media because i keep uploading tips then they can follow or my newsletters so you know they can take something back they might contact me later and become my clients at some point uh, but with the corporate sessions you can't do much you can only offer like 60 minutes worth of some change mm-hmm. yeah that is a an exceptional service an exceptional option i've been in the the gym game for uh, close to two decades and i've never heard of a gym offering a service like that uh, yeah. so what i'm what i'm hearing is yeah like there's there's the, the the enemy's cortisol right it's the stress hormone or yeah. the tiny tigers is, that are, yeah. those tiny tigers exactly. that are all around yeah. and and what i'm hearing is people come into the gym they expect a result they need to lose body fat but their stress levels are so high it doesn't matter what you do in the yeah. gym if you're training them really hard you're just increasing those stress levels So you have a program where you teach them a mindfulness or you have, you know, professionals come in and they do a therapy session to bring down the cortisol or you add that in yeah. at the end of the session whether it's breathing, stretching or just talking about it to bring down the cortisol and then you say that the results are amplified from that. Am I am I right to say that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's you know because it's a gym, most of these people are CEOs and COOs in their companies. They mm-hmm. are the one giving orders. Mm-hmm. now you know you're taking orders from your trainer not everyone's comfortable with that it's a lot of ego it's it becomes very egoistic also therapy is stigmatized a lot in india um you know so when you're going to call it therapy no one wants to take it no one wants to talk and i've done this in my personal consultation also when i do my online consultation i tell people i'm going to offer f- for your therapy for first therapy session for free I'll include it in my cost, but I see that the client really needs it. Mm-hmm. The client genuinely, I want to be able to help the client, but many people, it's just so stigmatized. The moment they hear a therapist, they feel like no, they don't want to take it. What um, do you think that is? I think mental health is not discussed as much in India. So when you're telling someone you're depressed, um, I don't think there's a lot of people don't understand the concept you're coming from. It's just when people say you're depressed, they're just going to say. no just go for a walk or you know talk to someone about it it's just not discussed at all but i've seen this well because i came from a psychology background i was studying psychology and i have my masters in psychology before i got into nutrition and fitness i used to work with couples initially when i came back to india and i used to train couples so like one on one training with couples and i saw that couples who work out together tend to stir a stronger bond because when you work out you're releasing these hormones dopamine you're releasing mm-hmm. the happy hormones which the body confuses for being in love really it is it's so strange right it's so strange so couples who work out together tend to st- share the stronger bond with each other versus and this is this is so common in my gym and i'm not talking from a relationship perspective but a lot of women tend to share a strong relationship with their trainer in terms of being able to talk easily because mm-hmm. they are seeing the trainer one hour of undivided attention every single day no cell phones no no division of attention but they are seeing their husbands like 10 minutes in the evening mm-hmm. you know diff- everyone has a different work schedule and everyone's really busy so you're not really seeing your spouse as much and even if you are seeing it's a lot of technology you're watching tv together you're watching something together you're on your phones but how much of undivided attention are you getting and if all everyone as a family if like the husband and wife and the kids if you can have like at least two two or three times in a week a family workout session it could be going for a hike it could be doing like playing a sport but that would strengthen the bond of the family so much more than anything else and it's therapeutic 
Mm -hmm. So the dopamine can be uh, miscommunicated as love. So I'm just trying to, I'm going through yeah. all my, my female clients that I train. I'm, uh, oh no. Yeah. That one loves me. That one, that one does not love me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't I, mean it from that. I know. I know. I know exactly what you're saying. And I know exactly what you're saying. And um, I love that you mentioned that because sometimes in fitness, people think that it's all on themselves. You got to do your own thing. But when you can make it, you and your partner, you and yeah. your kids, when you can make it a daily habit to do some form of exercise. Yeah. I've always been in the situation where I felt it, but I did not know, that, you know, with that chemical hormone release, that's how the body, you know, perceives it. So that's a huge, that's a big win for me. I appreciate that little bit of knowledge. Yeah. And you have these great tips on your Instagram page. Uh, I'm always looking and liking on the ones you have. You had one the other day about sleep. You talked about sleep yeah. and then how lack of sleep affects uh, 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 like, like a diabetic uh, reaction there with your blood glucose. Can you talk on that just for a split second? So interesting. So you would have believed this. I mean, uh, with most of us, we think people sleep, right? People generally sleep and sleep should come naturally. But I was just talking to a client today and she's from New York. And she told me that she's gone days without sleeping. On an average, she sleeps about two to three hours per night. And she's like, I've done this for 10 years. I'm fine. I don't have any problems. I mean, that's what, I mean, she, of course, her cholesterol levels are high and she has all these health problems, mm -hmm. but then she doesn't associate lack of sleep with any problems at all. And I, I mean, when you want to recover recently, right now, when, you know, COVID is going on and post COVID as a post COVID recovery, if you have COVID and then you, you know, you're recovering from COVID, they recommend you a melatonin supplement. That's to help you sleep better because the more you sleep, the faster your recovery. Talk to any doctor. They're going to say post-COVID sleep well. They're going to say eat well and sleep well. You know, the more you sleep and the more you rest, the more you recover. Um, that's There was this specific study which spoke about flu shots and um, antibody development. Mm. So people, you know, who get their seasonal flu shots, they did a study with them. And turns out that if you're getting less than seven hours of sleep per night, then you don't develop as many antibodies as someone who's getting seven to nine hours of sleep per night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's not also only sleep, it's the quality of your sleep, uh, which matters. They haven't done a study for COVID vaccination. They should probably, but if it's for a flu shot, then COVID vaccination is also technically a viral shot. You know, it's the same thing. Um, it's funny that you bring that up. Like I, I messaged my sister yesterday who lives in another province yeah. for me and she's going for her, her vaccination uh, this weekend. And I'm very aware of exactly what you're talking about with the flu shot because they, they tested the vaccine effectiveness and the antibodies. And I said, you better get eight hours of sleep. She's like, why? I'm like, yeah. I don't know, but I think it'll work better based on flu shots. I, the exact same. Yeah. This conversation was happening yesterday, but recovery yeah. is, is so important. And you're right. It happens when you sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no other way for the body to recover. And what we think about is like deep sleep and REM sleep. We know that there's two main stages of sleep. You have the deep and the REM sleep. And when we say that, you know, you're sleeping less, like let's say you have, a, you're supposed to sleep for eight hours, but that particular day you had an important meeting, you didn't get enough sleep, you slept for six hours. So in your mind, you're thinking, okay, I slept 20% less. That's okay. You know, but that's not true because most of your, uh, you know, REM sleep, I, I think it's REM. Most of your REM sleep happens in the second part of the night when you're just going to wake up. So you haven't slept 20% less. You missed out on two hours of REM sleep. So you mm -hmm. would have probably lost like 50% of REM sleep. Mm -hmm. You know, Yeah, because so you go through time, the, if you're doing those phases, right? You do your, your REM sleep, you your NREM phase, sleep. Yeah. yeah, you're missing a full phase. Yeah. Yeah, you're missing out. So you're missing out this huge chunk of REM sleep. And REM sleep is the one which is associated with all the benefits of sleeping. Mm -hmm. So no, you haven't slept just two hours left. You slept like a huge, like 50% of your sleep is reduced because you haven't got good enough REM sleep. Um, I used to tell people, you know, stay away from technology one hour before sleeping. So it helps you sleep better. But I started realizing no one's going to do that. They don't listen to me. And it's not, now it's not a practical advice. It was mm -hmm. like 10 years back. Um, but now telling people to get off technology one hour before going to sleep is not a very practical advice because they're not going to follow it. We are so used to a technology. They're not going to follow it. So now my advice is, okay, if you're watching something, make sure it's like, you know, um, like a reruns of friends or something, something very, very mundane where you don't have to think a lot, um, mm. but literally it's mindless activity. If that's going to relax you, let that relax you. Uh, but try and make sure that, you know, you're getting your full eight hours of sleep. And if you're not getting that full eight hours of sleep, then work with a specialist to improve the quality of your sleep. 
because we realize that you know my fitness is not okay i'm going to work with a personal trainer to help me improve my fitness my nutrition is not okay i'm going to work with a nutritionist but your sleep is not okay and you think it's okay it's not okay you have to work with someone to help you fix it mm-hmm. and and you mentioned before that when there's just 2 hours loss of sleep it affects your what did you say your blood glucose levels the next day or your diabetic sensations yeah, yeah. the next day yeah so this is another there's been a series of studies on diabetes and sleep uh losing even one hour, one night of sleep gives you pre diabetic markers the very next morning the very next morning so the very next morning you could you know see that your blood glucose is a little bit higher your um insulin resistance is a little bit more and you know you see all these markers for diabetes the very next morning so over time now when you already have a genetic predisposition to diabetes you know you have the gene for diabetes and you're not sleeping well and you're not eating well what do you think is going to happen it's a new control you have to make lifestyle change and your stress levels are too high what do you think is going to happen and mostly these go with each other when your stress levels are high you're not going to eat and sleep well you know and then that's and then you say that it's all genes it's not all genes um it is so many other factors uh but also people who are already diabetic people who sleep less than 7 hours tend to have 23% higher blood sugar levels so one way to just reduce your blood sugar levels and by 23% is to make sure you're getting good quality sleep that's a that's a great tip great piece of advice yeah. you could give someone is from a health perspective overall and over all the time you've been dealing with people like we mentioned before 12,000 plus people you must have figured out you know what are some of the common things everybody is is doing wrong with their nutrition is there like one to three things that you're like everyone is doing this if they just didn't do that they could live a much healthier and longer life yeah um number one the obsession with calorie counting mm-hmm. i absolutely feel that you know everyone's just gotten really obsessed with calorie counting calorie counting is not in terms of today's practice it's a really ancient ancient um you know science because i'll give you an example we round off carbohydrates to four calories right we round off proteins to four calories and we round off fats to nine calories for every gram but carbohydrates are subdivided into sugars starches and uh, fiber so mm-hmm. there's three subcategories to carbohydrates sugars are four calories for every gram resistant starch or starches could be 1 to 2 calorie for every gram and fiber could be 2 to 3 calories for every gram so when you're calculating carbohydrates and especially 50 60% of your calories are coming from carbohydrates but you're getting good quality fiber and resistant starch which is a lot of carbohydrates on plant based food you could be eating like 50% less than you you think you're eating so you could be calculating like 1500 calories you know mm-hmm. 60% from carbohydrate and actually eating 1200 calories over time when you're eating 12 1300 calories you're not getting your micronutrients mm-hmm. you're not getting your daily requirements of selenium and magnesium and zinc and you're not getting these micronutrients that leads to deficiencies and if that leads to deficiencies again it's like a tiger fall chasing you the last thing your body wants to do is gain muscle mass or lose weight the last thing the body is thinking when you don't have micronutrients all the body is trying to do is to protect you so it's going to start storing everything you're eating and over time you're going to gain weight that second thing why calorie counting is really ancient in terms of science a lot of factors affect calories so they've done studies on people which show that you could take the same exact person put the person in metabolic ward so you have control in terms of what the person is uh, doing in terms of physical activity so calories output the first month you give the person 2500 calories but in the first half of the day 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. you know mm-hmm. finishing all those calories exact same food exact same person and see what happens after a month in terms of weight loss and weight gain now in the second month take the same exact person but give the same exact food and calories in the second half of the day from 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. yeah and then see what happens and you start noticing that consuming calories in the first half you tend to lose weight but the same exact food same exact person same metabolism the second half you tend to gain weight and not only weight you also have markers for like cholesterol and i think hypertension mm-hmm. why is this happening if it's the same exact calories so the way our body digests those calories when i eat 2500 calories is it getting converted to glycogen or triglycerides and that decision is made by the body depending on your insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity now to control insulin resistance or sensitivity i can do that by fixing my gut so if you have a weak gut if you have a bad functioning gut then it does not matter how little you're eating you're not going to be able to lose weight as fast as someone who has a better gut 
And just on that and, topic, this, I know if I'm thinking it, someone else is going to think it. Could you give an example? How would somebody know if they don't have a healthy gut? Like if you're listening to this right now, you yeah. mentioned that. Some, how would someone know I if can, they don't? Can I share my, can I share my screen sure. for a second? Is that okay? So I don't know if people on the podcast uh, who are listening to this can see this, but definitely go on YouTube to see this. Everyone should see this. Okay. So for those uh, who can see the screen, this is the Bristol stool chart. The Bristol stool chart is basically a, it's sort of a marker for how your gut, how your gut is doing. So it's basically a poop chart, you know, <laughs> ideally. I was just thinking if we're, seen, if we're not, if someone can't see this, would you like to try to describe what we're talking about? But then I realized it's a poop <laughs> chart. So how about you just talk and then we'll let other people figure it out. Yeah. So ideally, uh, so it has pictures of different types of poops. Ideally, you want to be at a type four bowel movement and one to two healthy bowel movements. Yeah. And mm -hmm. if you're at a type four and have about one to two healthy bowel movements, by healthy bowel movement, I mean, you know, when you go to the toilet, you should come out empty. You shouldn't feel like you have anything left inside. You should be able to basically just go 100%. And if you do have a type four, two bowel movements, that means you have a very, very good functioning gut. That is one sign. I'm going to tell you the second sign. But the other thing is most people by looking at this chart are going to say like, oh, I'm at a type three or a type four. No, what I'd like you to do is take a screenshot of this tomorrow morning. See how your bowel movement looks like. Because if we go on memory, all of us feel like we're on type four. But when I ask my clients literally to, you know, track their bowel movements for three days and get back, it's a very, very different story. Um, so track it, track it for the next three days and you'll have an idea in terms of what your bowel movements are like and, and if, what and your gut you, is like. And if you don't want to, if you didn't want to describe it, there was one to seven, one looked like small <laughs> circles, like marbles, seven looked oh, like brown water. And the four looked like, yeah. I think the term they used was a, a, a thick sausage or, or sausage like, okay. right? Yeah. Hold on. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah. So type one, separate hard lumps like nuts, hard to pass. Type four, which is ideal, like a sausage or snake, smooth and soft. Type seven, watery, no solid pieces, entirely liquid. And, and, and just to add on to this, when I mentioned about my boys, there's been times where one of them goes to the bathroom and I go in, he moves young and I go to wipe his bum. And it looks like a six or a seven. And the first thing I say, I said, mm. what do you, what do you have today at school? And they say, oh, they, they brought out these special snacks, you know, in the afternoon, what do you mm. have? And then they tell me the things they had. Cause I can tell right away when they have a different bowel movement, they yeah. ate something they don't normally eat. And that's not right. Yeah, that's not right. The second determinant, and this is also a very interesting story, not so very interesting fact. People don't think about this. Now, when you look at, you know, when we talk about food sensitivities, I'm not talking about food allergies, like a full-blown allergy. I'm talking about sensitivities. Generally, when you have a sensitivity, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to avoid the food, right? You won't eat it. But a gut has good bacteria and bad bacteria. I'm oversimplifying this. Now, the good guys in the gut, we think of the good guys as being like, you know, one strain of bacteria. It's not one strain, but it's like a society with multiple different colonies, or different apartments. So there's different strains of the good guys, good bacteria, and you want the good bacteria to be higher than the bad bacteria. There are certain good bacterias which love to feed on apples. There are certain good bacterias which love to feed on rice. There are certain good bacterias which love to feed on pineapple. There are certain good bacterias which love to feed on carrots. So every mm. food group has a specific preference of bacteria. When you stop eating carrots, let's say, the carrot-loving colony is going to shrink and die. And then when you reintroduce carrots after a few months, you're going to start noticing that you have sensitivities because you don't have that particular strain of bacteria to help you digest it. So if there was one thing to determine how to improve gut health. It's diversity of plants. Make sure you're getting about 40 different types of plants per week into your diet. You want to start making sure that you have different colonies and all of those colonies are thriving. You know, and that's a determination of a good gut. That's re really interesting to know. There was, um, what's his name? Dr. Norm Robillard, and he's a microbiologist. And uh, a lot of his research is about treating things like acid reflux and SIBO and yeah. GERD. And he's identified certain gut bacteria that feed off certain things, some resistant starches. And he was talking yes. about, you know, a way to treat acid refluxes, remove certain carbohydrates like rice, because they are mm -hmm. feeding 
off of that. And then your bad gut bacteria is growing, producing tons of methane. You're getting all these digestive issues, but to remove certain ones because the bad bacteria is eating them. And you know what, besides besides him, you're the first person I heard to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. It is actually, so mostly the inflammatory bacteria is the sugars. Sugars is a big one. Oils, um, meat, saturated fats. So these are all the inflammatory bacteria. So the moment you take that off your diet, you start seeing that not only the bad guys going down, but also feed the good guys and do things which help the good guys grow. You can reverse um, migraines, which is related with the gut in as little as two weeks. People who have lived with migraines all their lives, you know, by just fixing the gut, doing nothing, just work on the gut, work on fixing the gut. And you mm-hmm. can like, literally it's like magic. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting in the fitness industry, these, these things are coming up more and more today than they were when I started, probably when you started, when we started, Mm -hmm. nobody talked about cortisol and stress. Nobody talked about gut health. Nobody talked about sleep. And now they seem to be like, if you can get those three things lined up, you can be pretty healthy. Yeah, you can. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just as we come to an end here, because I'm very respectful of your time and so forth, what are you currently doing now? Like what, what's upcoming for you in the future? You got 12,000 clients online, you're running a gym. What's new and what, what's coming from you? Um, so my gyms <laughs> shut down because of the lockdown and we are yet open in India. Mm-hmm. So all my energy and um, time is going to my online work um, and my newsletters and just growing my online business, which is what I'm doing right now. I love uh, working with corporates and working across the globe. I, I take fitness workshops. So I do a lot of animal flow, Ashtanga yoga, um, a little bit of calisthenics and just a combination of everything coupled with mental health in one class, which is my fun favorite thing to do with mm-hmm. corporates, with like big companies and people. Awesome. Yeah. And this is all offered online now? It's all online. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Good. So I'll get that information from you and then I'll, I'll link it into our show notes here. So just one final thing, if anybody's listening right now, and if you want to give them one piece of advice to live a, a better, healthier life, is it don't count calories? Is it get your sleep? Is it get your gut in control? You know, what's the one thing you want to give to anybody listening? Just make the easiest change possible. And just one change per day, because whatever is your first step, take your first step. Um, and it's not easy. Everything is going to be hard. You know, anything out of your ordinary, what you have, like what's your ordinary life is going to be hard. But trust me, eventually it becomes a part of your lifestyle. So if your starting point current, currently is just drinking eight glasses of water per day, let's start with that. You know, let's get that right. And then move on to what you feel comfortable with. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much um, uh, for coming on, taking the time, especially since evening being on here, Project Fitness Podcast. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, We will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.